A lot of people are going to be tuning in to church this particular week, maybe that haven't in the past. But some are going to do so with hesitation because their previous involvement with religion was not really a great experience. In fact, they might describe it as a hollow experience. Unfortunately, there are many churches who have uh, really nice buildings, glass, stained glass displays or lofty cathedrals or even breathtaking architecture. But like those decorative eggshells we have at Easter time, they are ornate on the outside, but uh, without real life on the inside, no vibrancy on the inside. Other churches seem to uh, put on a show each Sunday. It seems more like uh, entertainment than worship. The preacher goes stomping all over the place, you know, and the music is a-rocking and the hands are a-swaying, and it might feel electric, but it's uh, artificial. It's... uh, more like an electric light show that's choreographed than anything we'd describe as genuine, powerful worship of God. The so-called power of God fizzles in churches like that. As soon as the lights are turned off and people go back home, lives are unchanged. And so people that have been involved in religion before, they really ask, what's genuine about this? Where really is the power of God? Because there's no effect. It ends up being a hollow experience. Unfortunately, many in the broader umbrella of Christianity, as it's called, have substituted religious show for the vibrant presence of Almighty God. Remember what Jesus said, though, when he came into the world in John 10.10. He said, the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, but I came. That is, I came into the world on a mission. I came that man would have life and have it abundantly. God wants you to experience abundant life. He has abundant life to give to you, no matter who you are. He has power he wants you to experience. Jesus came into the world literally to destroy the power of death and the power of the devil. He wanted to impart a supernatural kind of life to us that would be better than the life we get in this world. And he did it by his resurrection. That's why we celebrate Easter. Easter, you know, is not really about cute bunny rabbit and a basket. Why does a bunny rabbit have a basket anyways, if you think about it? Easter is really about power. If you're going to understand it, you're going to have to understand Easter is about power. You may look at Good Friday and the cross and say there's weakness there. There's a lot of truth to that. But Easter is not about weakness. Easter is about power, prophesied power, life-changing power, unstoppable power. I know it doesn't feel right to be stuck at home on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, but this is where God has us. And I pray if you feel weak, if you feel isolated, if you feel lonely, you feel shy, feel fearful, that this message about God's power will actually strengthen and help you. It's from the book of Ephesians chapter 1, if you would turn there, Ephesians chapter 1. And it's really in looking at verses 19 to 23, but I'm going to start by reading verse 18. So it's Ephesians 1. 18 through 23 as I read it. Paul is writing, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And, verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength 
of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. A lot in this passage. Really, this part of God's holy word, if you read it closely, is a prayer. Paul was praying that believers, born-again folk, would understand how great their hope and their inheritance in God actually is and how great God's power is at work to their benefit. As amazing as it may seem, it states that God's resurrection power, power that raised Jesus from the dead, is also at work in your life if, and this is a big if, you are truly a believer in Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but you can actually go to church. You can be baptized in water. You can take communion. You can say prayers in church. Your parents could be Christians. Your parents could be deacons or even a pastor in the church. You could have all of those things true of you and you not yet be a Christian. You not really yet be saved and be part of God's kingdom. Why? Because in order to be saved, you have to call on Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. You have to agree with God you're a sinner and that you are under the judgment of God and that you deserve that judgment. When you agree that's true and you call on Jesus to save you and no one else, believing in the power of his resurrection, then and only then do you become a true Christian. And if that happens to you, you'll be turning away from a life of sin. If you want the power that Paul is writing about, I'm going to be preaching about today. If you want that power in your life, then you have to first come to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because these words declare unmistakably that God is operating in the lives of believers with, now listen to this, the same power that he exerted in the life of Jesus, his son. That's right. Paul prays we would get that connection. We would see this truth with our spiritual eyes. And that's why we're going to look at two things today. First, we're going to see what God's power did in the life of Jesus. And then we're going to see what God's power can do in our own lives. Those two things. We're going to start with the life of Jesus. What should we see about God's power in the life of Jesus? Did God work powerfully in the life of Jesus? Of course he did. Look at verse 19. Focus on verse 19. Paul writes, and what is the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And he's going to go on to talk about the life of Jesus, but let's stop there. How is God's power even described here? It's described as surpassing greatness. Now that term surpassing in the original Greek means exceeding or going beyond something else. It is power that is, in other words, thrown so far beyond greatness. There's great power, and then Paul says, this is so far beyond great power, it exceeds it by a long shot. You know, um, they have ways of measuring energy and power. All of it is measurable. Even the energy of the sun, as often awesome as it is, can be measured. I was reading that the sun puts out more energy in one second than all of civilization uses in thousands and thousands of years. That's mind-boggling how much power there is in the sun, yet it can be measured. God's power is surpassingly great, meaning it's beyond measurement. 
After all, God made the sun, right? And then he made the billions and billions of the galaxies, which have billions and billions of stars that are larger than the sun. And how did he do it? He did it merely by speaking in a matter of seconds. As God himself puts it in Isaiah 40, verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be as equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. How do you explain the power and the greatness of God? It's beyond measurement. Notice also now in verse 20, Paul uses three different Greek terms to describe God's power. He talks about the working of the strength of his might. Do you see all three of those words? That first word working is the word energeo, and we actually get our word energy from that. Energeo does not refer to latent energy, but to the actual exercising of power, thus the term working. The second term is strength, kratos. This noun also means working, but it means working in an effective way to achieve a goal. So sometimes it's translated as dominion or might or even power. It is Power as force and mastery. Kratos rules. Kratos masters, and it accomplishes things. And then the third word is iskus. It means might or strength. Actually, this word refers to latent force, force that is stored up energy. It's poised and ready to be used, like the physical strength you might see in an athlete's muscles when he's about ready to do something. He has all of that energy. It's poised to be used, but it's not yet exerted. And thus, iskus is translated as might. You see what Paul is doing in describing God's power? He's purposefully heaping up words about God's power because it's so hard to describe. He wants to emphasize the power and show the facets of God's power. You could take those three words and you could translate it something like this. The active carrying out of dominant might or the energizing of dominating stored up power or even the working of mastering strength, any of those kinds of ideas. So Paul takes those three terms and then he applies them to the power of God at work in the life of Jesus. Look at verse 20 again. It says, which he, that is God, brought about in Christ When he, what? Raised him from the dead. The resurrection is about the exerting of the power of God. God's power was at work in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some people think that Christianity is for weak people. They say, you know, I don't want to become a Christian because that's for the weak people, people that say they need God in their life. You know, they're so weak. But I think maybe there's been misunderstanding about that. We, we are not weak people. We uh, were dead people, <laughs> dead. Before believing in Jesus Christ, weak would not describe us. We were incapable of really responding to the things that God wanted us to do. Every human being is under the death sentence. God justly declared that we all must die. Why? Because of our sin. Give our bodies just a few more years and what happens to them? You can watch them. They all return back to dust. Some people talk about how they're able to cheat death. I was diagnosed about five years ago, as many of you know, with cancer. And uh, part of the cancer community, one of the things they say is, I'm a cancer survivor. I don't really like wording it that way. I I like to view it more as God has had mercy on me. He didn't have to. It's not something I'm doing to survive. God is sustaining my life. They say, I'm a cancer survivor. 
And uh, I think people should just thank God for mercy. But I'll tell you one thing. If you're a cancer survivor, you are not a death survivor yet. Death is not going to be cheated. You can't cheat death. I don't know if you've been up to Gettysburg recently and seen a lot of the monuments and the statues that they have up there. They have, you know, these are the people that won and these are the people that lost. Here are the people that were killed in the battle. Here are the people that were survived. That was back in 1863, July of 1863. Guess, guess what about everybody that fought in the Battle of Gettysburg? They're all dead now. <laughs> They're all gone. It doesn't matter if they survived that one. They're all dead now. That's what happens to all of us. You know, men can put a spaceship on Mars. They can clone living things. Eventually, they're going to come up with a cure for this virus. But neither man nor any other created power in the universe can bring a person back to life after being brain dead for parts of three days. All modern medicine, all their laboratories, their technology, their computer-assisted calculations cannot resurrect an ant from the dead, much less a human being. My hero is not a cancer survivor, but he is a death demolisher. And his name is Jesus Christ, who said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked Martha when he said that, do you believe this? If you answer that, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is a death demolisher and I put my faith in him, then you know that you have the power of God working inside of you too. There was some unbelievable display of divine voltage early that first Easter morn. All it says in the records is that the tomb was empty. They came and they looked in. The Bible doesn't make a big deal out of what happened at the moment of the resurrection, but it was powerful. It altered the course of all of humanity. One lightning bolt of divine life-giving power entered into the human race at that point in time. When Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead, the icy grip of death on the human race was not just pulled back. His fingers were broken off. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It was power. It was God's power. No one else defeated death. And no one else throughout human history could even attempt to defeat death. That's because no one else was God's only begotten son. Listen, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that didn't make him the son of God, but that was the day he was declared to the whole world that he was God's son. Everybody else on the planet, God left dead. But Jesus Christ was the son of God, lived a perfect and righteous life. He did not deserve death. He was not under death's curse, and God raised him from the dead. In fact, Peter said it was impossible for death to hold him down. Some people say they can't believe in miracles because they believe in science. I don't think you really understand science properly, by the way, because science observes things, tests, and repeats them. But let me tell you something. If there is an almighty God in existence, and there has to be, you can't explain the universe any other way, then I want to let you know that nature obeys God. God doesn't obey nature. If God made nature, any laws that are there are the laws that he gave them. They're not laws he has to obey. God is real. And we should not only believe miracles are possible, we could say that when God wants to put his fingerprint on something in human history, he does a miracle, and that has the mark of God. And we should look for that, even if they're rare. The resurrection of Jesus was the one great, last, miraculous sign 
Jesus said he would leave the entire world when the evil generation wanted more and more signs and they were seeing miracles and they were not believing. He said, I'm only going to give you one more sign, the sign of Jonah. And he was talking about his resurrection from the dead after three days. And he gave that sign. Everybody is required to think about that one sign and believe in that one sign. Jesus' resurrection was no product of CPR, no resuscitation. He was laid in a solid rock tomb, dead for parts of three days, but his body never saw corruption. You know, I went to a church where they talked about the resurrection, but they didn't really believe in it. They believed kind of in what many religions believe, that you kind of live on in the memory of other people. You know, that you go on and live on and say, ah, I believe in the resurrection. I, I'm going to live on after death. And, and the memory of my grandmother is like this. You know, you can keep those kinds of dreams and memories. My Jesus is alive bodily, in flesh and blood forevermore. In fact, you're going to see him one day. You're going to touch him. The resurrection raised Jesus to an altogether more glorious, permanent life. He's coming back to the planet. Every eye is going to see him. He is bodily raised from the dead. If you don't believe in the bodily resurrection, you don't believe in a resurrection. You know, some people think of Christianity as a system of morals, how to do good or to stay away from doing evil. Christianity is much more than that. It, it's not even just a way to get inner peace like some of the religions of the East might be. It, it is about one man, a Jewish man, who literally bodily space and time with hundreds of eyewitnesses was raised from the dead. His death was confirmed publicly. His burial place was known and it was secure. And then he was raised bodily with hundreds of eyewitnesses who immediately wrote about it, bore their testimony, lived a life consistent with it, and eventually died for their belief in it. You can't have more evidence provided for the resurrection of Jesus than that. If, if you don't believe in his resurrection, you don't believe in evidence. You wonder why people are looking to the stars to try to find some UFO, something to hope in, something for humanity, some stargate to enter into, to give them hope for the future. I would say this, even if there is a civilization somewhere far out there, they would be looking to find our planet because only on our planet do you have a portal to everlasting life and his name is Jesus Christ. They don't have that anywhere else. We have that. Jesus is not science fiction. He is recorded in human history. And believe it or not, concerning God's exertion of power, we're only getting started as far as Paul's concerned. God's power did more than raise Jesus from the dead. God's power also seated Jesus at God's right hand. Look at the last part of verse 20. It says, and seated him, that's Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the spiritual realm. The resurrection was great. But Jesus was not only raised from the dead, after 40 days of appearing in that new glorified body, which had flesh and bones, had the marks of the nails still in his hands, yet was transformed in some glorious way. After 40 days of eating with the disciples and letting them touch his hands and his side, after 40 days of teaching them more about the kingdom of God so they would understand what it was, after 40 days of being seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses, then Jesus was lifted off of this planet into a spiritual dimension to be with God, seated with God as the king of the universe at God's right hand. 
God took a beaten up, bloody, cold, lifeless corpse of a man who was wrapped in spices and cloth, buried in a dark sepulcher with a giant tombstone rolled in front in a very insignificant portion of the world and raised that person to the highest position in the universe. That's the kind of power that Paul is talking about. The right hand of God the Father in the heavens. You know, the right hand of a king because most people are right-handed, so don't mean to offend any left-handed people out there, but the right hand of a king was always the seat of honor in the ancient days. In Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm recognized by both Christians and Jews as speaking of the coming Messiah, it's a psalm written by David when he was king of Israel, and verse 1 of Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God, as king of the universe, is, is speaking to his son and says, Sit here at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. That establishes him with power and authority. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64, Caiaphas, the high priest, said to Jesus at his trial, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to them, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Sitting there gave him authority and power. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 14, we actually get a glimpse of Jesus in his exalted and powerful condition. It says there, as they're praising him, they say, to him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's the symbol of Jesus in the book of Revelation, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. It's power and dominion. He was exalted to that position. Look how his position is described here in verse 21. If you look at 21, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then verse 22 adds, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. There are earthly authorities. People don't recognize this, but above earthly authorities are heavenly and spiritual authorities, both evil and good. They're principalities and authorities. In the book of Ephesians, uh, maybe more than any other book in the New Testament, it speaks of these heavenly places and the authorities that are there, and it refers to these angelic and spiritual authorities. They have dominion in different ways. We can't see them, but they've been given various kinds of authority that is up there. But according to God's word right here, Jesus has become greater than them. He was given the supreme badge of authority over all of those lower authorities. He is, in fact, far above all the others. There are these authorities, and then there's this gap, and then far above them is Jesus. No one is higher. In fact, remember when he returns with authority on the white horse at his second coming, he has a name written on him, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No one's higher. People often ask, is Jesus stronger than Satan? Well, there you have your answer. He is higher than all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Do you know what that means? These are words that established authorities would have. Ephesians 3.10 says the rulers and authorities are in these heavenly places. Also, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul was warning, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against human beings, 
but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's not talking about Rome. It's not talking about the authorities you know, that, that Rome had in various portions of the world at that time. It's talking about spiritual forces that are way above them. Jesus is higher than all the demonic powers. Now, why is that important for us to say? Because all of the world's religions, regardless of what religion it is, they're all part of the pagan religious landscape, and they're all driven and led by demonic powers. They don't recognize that. Some, in some cases, they call their higher authorities gods. In Islam, they, they call them Allah. In other religions, they have various spirits that they worship. But these are all forces and powers in heavenly places that are getting their praise and their worship from various aspects of humanity. But Jesus is far above them. Jesus is not seated among them as equals. He's far above them in power. We Christians get accused of being narrow-minded and exclusive. Why does Jesus have to be the only way to God? Because he's God's only begotten son and because he rose from the dead and because Jesus, because God the Father seated Jesus in the heavenly places far above the other authorities at his right hand. That's why. Pagan religions worship false gods from Buddhism to Hinduism to Islam to tribal religions, you name it. Even if they don't describe themselves as a religion that believes in God, they're more meditative and philosophical, they still have demonic authorities that lead them. Behind all other religions of the world are powers. There, there are highly intelligent and powerful spirits that are behind them. But Jesus is far higher. His name is above all. No matter what authority or power you may imagine, the power of God exalted Jesus far above them. And in case somebody thought that there might be some name that arises in the future that would be greater than Jesus, let a few more centuries go by and there's like, wow, there's this new great person. In case anybody had a thought like that, Paul had to add, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, take everybody that's named during our time, take the future and what it'll be in the future, any other name, his name is still above their, those names. There's not going to be anybody that ever arises that will knock Jesus off his throne. It's as if God sat Jesus down there in the heavenly places and he stared down the rest of the universe and he said, do you got it? Do you understand now? I gave my son universal lordship. Christ is not one of the high ones. He's my only begotten son. I give him total universal supremacy. And Christ will share that unique position of honor and power with nobody. Not now, not ever. This brings to mind Philippians 2, right? Therefore also God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you don't confess Jesus as your master, authority, and king now, you will be forced to do so in the future. You will bow before him. You will confess him as Lord as the demons will be forced to do so. And then you'll be cast away from his presence and his kingdom forever and ever. Why be on the losing team when Jesus is inviting you to come surrender to him and be a winner along with him. He defeated death. He has a kingdom that's coming. The power of God has been exerted in the life of Jesus like nobody else. 
Now, we come to that point in the sermon where you need to sit up and listen because now we're going to talk about you. We talked about the power of God. Paul wrote about the power of God in the life of Jesus. But the amazing thing about chapter 1 here in Ephesians is that he talks about the power of Jesus in that lofty and great way because he's trying to get us to understand as believers in Jesus that God is using his power in our lives in the same way. He's using and exerting the same power, I should say, in our life. Look at the last part of verse 22 and then to verse 23. And God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. That's us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Please notice, this verse does not just say that Jesus is the head of the church. It does say that. And by the way, how many heads of the church are there? Just one, right? It's not two. It's not one on earth and one in heaven. There's not three in heaven. There's not five on earth. There's one and he's in heaven. He's the head of the church and he's the only head of the church. But it doesn't just say that. It doesn't just say Jesus is the head of the church. It says God gave Jesus to the church as the church's head. Here Paul is bringing us back to what he prayed that we would see with the eyes of our heart. God gave the church a very powerful head. Jesus is in the heavens with all that power, and he's connected, albeit it's a mystery, in some organic way to the church, which is down here on earth. The head, as in the illustration, sends life-giving impulses down into the body, right? That's how the head works. Our bodies now are responding to what our head tells us to do. The, the head controls the body. The head works powerfully through the body. And the headship of Jesus Christ is not meant as a, a whip to, to discipline the body and get it into shape, but rather as a gift to empower and direct the church. The last part of verse 23 really reveals the intimate connection we have with Christ. It says Christ fills us, his body, with himself and then we fill him out. That means that we don't leave him as a head without a body. Another way of putting this is Christ is literally alive in his, in his resurrected body in the heavens, but right now Christ also lives in the world through the presence of his own spirit as his spirit fills us collectively on earth, his church. So his church sort of fleshes him out in the world and reveals him to the world. That's the point for us. When we understand what the church is, that's us. We understand that we're filled with him and he's a powerful head. This same resurrection and ascension power displayed in Jesus's life is now communicated to us through our connection to our head. Oh, how we need to understand and experience this same power at work in our lives. Go back to verse 19 for a moment and just look at that verse. There Paul writes, that the surpassing greatness of God's power works, and then it has a prepositional phrase there, toward us who believe. That's an important little prepositional phrase. God's power works to the benefit of everybody in the church. It works inside of me. His power works inside of you. You may ask, how? I don't always feel the power of God. How is God's power working inside of us? There are three ways that God's power is working. That same power of God that worked in the life of Jesus is working in our lives in three ways. 
past, present, and future. Concerning the past, this passage immediately flows into chapter 2. Remember, the, the chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired, so this letter would flow immediately into what we read in chapter 2, verse 1. And what do we read there? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, we were, we were dead. We were unable to respond to God. We were outside the life of God. We were being led by, ultimately, that which is evil. And you get down to verse 4, and it says, but God made us alive together with Christ. That making us alive is an exertion of God's power. Our new birth, in other words, being born again, being raised from the dead spiritually has already happened to us. That's our past, and it took the power of God to accomplish that. Being born again is resurrection power already operative inside of us. But more than the past, in the future, God's power will also work towards us. God's God's power guarantees that in the future, your body, as weak as it is, dead as it will be, will be raised from the dead powerfully as well. That's the inheritance that was mentioned in verse 18 that God has among the saints. There are many other scriptures that speak of the resurrection of the saints in the future. Your body will also undergo a resurrection from the dead, and that will be a powerful exertion of God's resurrection power. Your body will be taken out of the ground. It will be reassembled, but more than reassembled. It will be made into a new kind of a body. It will be, it will be glorified. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. He says, now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. There it is again. Our, our bodies will be raised in power. That is the working of God in our lives. Past Because of the resurrection of Jesus, he raised us, spiritually speaking, and caused our new birth, even though we were dead. In the future, our dead bodies are going to be raised from the dead. Both of those are examples of the resurrection power of God at work in the life of Jesus, also at work in our lives. But here's the thing, and here's the thing that a lot of believers miss, is that not only is that resurrection power working in the past in our lives, and in the future in our lives. But God's power, God's Easter power, his resurrection power is available and working in the life of the church and in the life of believers right now. That same power that we can't describe because it's greater than the energy of the sun, it's unstoppable power is at work in your life and my life presently. This is the other aspect, the present working of God's power. If you flip to chapter 3 in Ephesians and verse 16, you'll see that when you get there, he's actually praying that we would understand that. In verse 16, he prays that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The inner man is your inner self, your soul, and the spirit is the Holy Spirit of God. And he's praying that this power of God would be working presently in the life of believers and strengthening their inner person. That's beautiful. That's something that goes on inwardly. We have a power working inside of us right now, and it's God's resurrection power. I just don't think that many Christians understand this. What power is available to them? God can work inside you in ways you cannot imagine. Every time you doubt 
what God will do in your life, you're, you're doubting, not yourself, you're doubting the power of God. And I think we doubt the power of God a lot. I think we conclude that our, our losses and our constant giving into temptation and our constant inabilities is the norm for the Christian life. It is not. Too many Christians just seem to want to cope with the present and then wait for the future. Oh, in the future, there'll be power. No, yes, I mean, there will be power in the future, but there's that same power now. I think too many believers feel intimidated by the world. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Feel like you're being pressed into the mold by other people and the, the, the unbelievers seem just so powerful and it's so hard to live among them and, and live for Christ. You may even feel enslaved to your own sinful desires in your body. You might think you're no match for the attacks of the evil one. Rather than resisting temptation successfully, rather than putting to death the deeds of the body, as it says in Romans 8.13, you accept as normal failure. You're going to fail and fail and constantly fail, and that's normal and that's okay. And you look to the left and right, find other believers that kind of agree with you, and, and you're not reading about the power of God that's available to you. God even says in that same chapter, Ephesians 3, verse 20, God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That's present tense. There is a power he described as the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that is work at work in the church and it's working presently. And Paul says it, it can accomplish beyond what we even ask or think. It is working. Please, beloved, ask God to show you, to open your eyes to how powerful the Christian life can be. That Christ's resurrection power is not just about the past or the future. Living and serving and working by the power of God is how he wants us to live now. That, that's how Paul interpreted this. That, that's how the writer of Ephesians, the apostle Paul, lived. He said that he labored according to the power of God. Listen to Colossians 1.29. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, his power, which mightily works within me. He knew. He said, I am carrying out my apostolic work, striving and laboring according to God's power, which mightily works inside of me. He was aware of the power. He experienced that power. He relied on that power. Paul got much done for Christ's kingdom because he tapped into that power. Some men and women through church history have yielded themselves to God in such great ways. God did great things through their lives. God did impossible things through their lives. Do you remember the missionary William Carey? And he boldly challenged other believers, ask great things of God and attempt great things for God. And notice what came first, ask great things of God. Why? Because it's either going to be by his power or it's not going to get done. And then get out and attempt great. Don't go running out there attempting anything great for God till you get on your knees and, and beg God to work, right? Oh, we need to learn to use God's power. 
Yes, it's Easter Sunday and he is risen indeed. But do you believe that that resurrection power is at work in your life now? We serve a big God who's got a lot of power. If God has made resurrection and ascension power available to his people, he expects us to learn to live by that power. Like the desire expressed in Psalm 63 and verse 2, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. That's my theme verse for my life. I live for one purpose. I want to see God's power and glory. I, I know in the future I get to see it. I know in the past he's already shown me that power. I want to see it at work in the present. That's why I labor. That's why I pray. I hope that's what you want as well, to see something that people don't normally get to see, the exertion of God's power to accomplish things that other people say can't be done. God wants us to offer ourselves to him as servants to do great things so we can see not our own greatness but be thoroughly convinced this could never happen by my power. Contrary to the humanistic sentiment of our day, it is okay to doubt yourself. <laughs> Go ahead and doubt yourself all you want because you are inconsequential. It's not going to hurt you to doubt yourself, but never are you to doubt the power of God at work inside of you. What God can do with you, even if you are weak, is great things. In Philippians 2.13, it reminds us, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you think about God's power at work inside of you, what do you think of? Don't think of some flashy superhero that's showing off his power. God's power doesn't usually work in a flashy kind of a way. God's power is great, but it works quietly. It, it, it works, though, in a compelling way. Maybe as an illustration of this, it works more like the tide that comes in than a tidal wave that crashes down. You know, a giant tidal wave makes a humongous splash, but it's quickly dissipated and no real effects. But the tide inches in and no one can stop it. It just keeps coming and coming and coming and the effects of it are obvious. It takes over over time. That's how the power of God works in your life. Don't look for something flashy. Oh, I didn't see the power of God work, so this just can't be true. When Christ's resurrection power moves inside of you, it will bear you along like a tide and there'll be no stopping it. What are the effects of God's power in the life of believers? One is the power of love seen in others. You see a love in the life of a mature believer and you say, where does that come from? Well, it doesn't come from humanity. His great power also wells up inside of you like a fountain that never stops bringing the product of joy and you see this this uh, energetic, bubbling joy in the life of some believers in you, that's the power of God. His power grants you to be courageous, to speak boldly for Christ when others are cowering in the corner. His power helps you to get up day after day, week after week, and go do your responsibilities for your family or at work or your church and being faithful 
to his name. His power grants you peace. His power allows you to evangelize. His power motivates you to worship. His power allows you to to try things that other people won't try because God grants you faith to do it. Some of you are going to lose your jobs, and that's not a good thing, and we'll be praying for you. And then after you lose your job, you're going to write a resume and you're going to try to find a new job and you're going to to write down what your experience and your knowledge and your skills are and you're going to try to get hired again. When it comes to God's work, are you afraid that maybe you don't have the resume of the kind of man or woman that God would use in a powerful way? I think a lot of people conclude that. Well, I know people in the Bible were used greatly, but I'm not one of those people in the Bible. I don't have those credentials. Listen, God's power is so great, he looks for applicants with a resume that describe their weaknesses, not their strength. The the less you bring to the job, the more God wants to hire you. He wants to take weak people without confidence, without skill, without knowledge, without experience, and he wants to work his power particularly through them. They're great candidates for his work. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 does not say trust in your abilities with all of your heart. It says trust in who? The Lord with all your heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Listen, God's the one who gets all the glory when he chooses a weak vessel because everybody knows that guy couldn't have done that. We talk about the greatness of the apostle Paul. God used Paul to build the church up more than any other apostle. But remember, in the first century, he was the man that tried to tear down the church the most. And God looked at it and said, perfect candidate for me to reverse and show my power through him. If you are weak, unstable, wobbly, the more fragile the vessel you are, the easier it will be to discern the power of God at work. And so God will get all the glory. Paul wrote in that 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, verse, I didn't finish it. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, talking about the human body, that the surpassing greatness of the power might be of God and not from ourselves. Beloved, what better way to celebrate Easter than to appropriate the resurrection and the ascension power of God by opening up your life and saying, here am I, God, take me and use me. I I don't have anything special to bring to you. I'm nobody special in the church. Uh, you, You probably shouldn't use me, but I think because of that, I'm the perfect candidate. Take me and use me. Don't make excuses. Remember Moses? Go down, Moses, to Egypt, deliver my people. What did he say? I'm not very good at speaking, Lord. And the Lord said, I will be with your mouth. He didn't say, by the way, no, you're a better speaker than you think, Moses. Get in there and try again. He didn't do that. He didn't give him the humanistic pep talk. He just said, I'll be with your mouth. If you're sitting there thinking, but but I can't do that ministry. I, I can't accomplish that thing. I can't witness to those people. God simply says to you and me, I will be with you. It's all you need. Power comes from me. It's the same power that raised my son from the dead. 
It's the same power that took my son and seated him in the heavenly places. It's that same power that caused you to be born again in the past. It's the same power that's going to raise your body in the future. That power is in the church, inside of you as a believer, and you can learn to use it. You could pray something like this. Oh, Father, open my eyes that I will know and see the surpassing greatness of your power working towards me. Pray that and then get up and obey God, what he tells you to do in the Bible, and God will use you in great ways. Father, please impress upon our people how great your power is, your resurrection power. And Father, convince them that indeed you will work in us in great ways by your grace and by faith. Bless us as we continue to worship you, Lord, now in song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.